Is the killer in there? Probably. It's a horror podcast. It's going to frighten and disturb us. We're doing this at our own risk. <laughs> Ready? Ready for the dark tales when we dare not close our eyes. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Sleep Podcast Video Store. I'm David Cummings. Our VCR is ready to play stories about stimulating our bodies and minds. As we head into the week of U.S. Thanksgiving, we wish all who celebrate it a happy Turkey Day. And after that comes the infamous Black Friday sales. So while you're scoping out all the hottest deals, keep this in mind. We're going to be having our very own Cyber Monday sale on December 2nd. We'll be slashing prices on our season passes and bundles. So don't spend every penny on Friday. Grab some extra no-sleep content for a great price. And they make excellent holiday gifts. <laughs> Just saying. Head over to seasonpass.thenosleeppodcast.com for all the details. And don't forget another good gift idea. Tickets to see our Euro 2020 tour in January. The tour starts in six weeks, so don't wait too long to grab your tickets to one of our shows in the UK and Europe. And now, we're thankful that you're listening to our stories this week. We're ready to serve them up with all the stuffin'. So turn down the lights and grab the remote, because it's time for our feature presentation. In our first tale, we're reminded of the importance of being alone. Sometimes it's because we just need space, sometimes it's quiet in order to be able to work, and sometimes it's a little more sinister. In this tale, shared by author John Wiswell, we meet a man who will do anything to find his own space to be alone. Performing this tale are Nicole Doolin, Atticus Jackson, Ellie Hirschman, and Kyle Akers. So remember, sometimes when someone asks to be left alone, they mean it. Otherwise, the consequences can be dire, especially if there's not much daylight remaining. Taggart fled the city following a creek as far from the highway as daylight allowed. It took him through a sparse woodland, through the charred remnants of a cabin, and absolutely nothing that could hold him. The declining sun taunted him from between the balding spruces, with the cusp of the moon threatening to rise into the blue sky. It made hair stand up on the back of his neck and prickle against his threadbare shirt. The creek led him to a chubby schoolhouse, too red to be more than a decade old. Taggart had accidentally run right onto the cusp of urban creep, and the only relief was that the school looked closed. 
The windows were dark, reflecting now graying sky. And there were just two runt kids left on the front lawn, shoving each other into a pile of sawdust. He ducked to avoid their notice and found a precious opening, an animal hole that weather had eroded wider near the base of the creek. Taggart crawled inside, inviting anything that still remained to bite at him. It wouldn't matter. He simply had to put himself away before it got any later. Soil spilled down his collar as he sank to the far corner, groping around until he found thick roots from the white oaks above. This could work. He gathered up its roots and yanked as hard as he could, but the hole's walls afforded no give. Sighing, he pulled out the silver shackles, cuffing his right wrist around the bundle of roots. The metal stung like ice, reassuring him as it always had. Taggart fingered the key, not sure where to hide it from his other self. He moved to the mouth of the cave when he heard an adenoidal voice. Mr. Cox, Mr. Cox, Devin's bothering me again. Taggart held his breath and peered out the hole, across the creek and into the muted dusk. The moon would emerge over the canopy in minutes. A boy's puffy face blocked out the sky, ruddy cheeks and a runt nose quivering at him. He was ten at the oldest, belly straining against a red and green striped sweater and overalls. Mr. Cox, what are you doing in there? I'm not Cox. Get along. This is private land. This is the school. Do you help Mr. Cox clean the classrooms? Fuck off. I told you. I'm not Cox. So get the hell home. It was the only thing he could imagine no teacher or janitor saying. He hoped to spook the kid. The boy's breathing hitched, slender nostrils quivering. He withdrew from the opening, but Taggart could hear his labored breathing out there over the trickle of the creek. He must have had a deviated septum or something. In another moment, the boy's patched overalls returned. There was a Captain America shield ironed over one knee. I'm Leo. Can you walk me home for a minute? There's a big kid who waits in the road to beat me up if I go alone and Mom can't pick me up today. No. Taggart swatted at him with his free left hand. He could only reach halfway out of the hole with the slack from the shackles and roots. He hoped they'd hold. Sneak around him. Get. I tried, but he's cleverer than me. Cleverer? The kid had picked up a vocabulary word just to describe how forlorn he was. Taggart scratched at his aching jaw, already beginning to swell. It's not my problem. Devin steals things from me sometimes. He broke my hulk. Kid. Taggart emphasized warning with his tone, though he worried how much he could say without getting police called. He couldn't have another officer on his conscience. Kid, I'm really sick. Please leave me alone. Leo backpedaled two paces from the hole, studied his sneakers, then nodded to Taggart. I won't catch it from here. Mrs. Valdez in science says you have to be close to catch colds. He tilted his runt nose upward and noisily sucked in air. You breathe it. <sighs> That's science, huh? The boy hunkered down, squinting at him like an animal at the zoo. 
almost like he'd jabbed Taggart with a stick if one were nearby. Can I stay with you for a while? If Devin comes by, you can tell him to go away. Depends. Taggart looked around his dirt cave. He tugged on the cuffs, which bit harder with their coldness. If yelling wouldn't spook the kid, then he needed to find another way to get rid of him. And soon. You come here every day? Every school day. I haven't missed in four years. The boy held up three fingers and a thumb, leaving his middle finger down. I get a silver star every month I don't miss. I make constellations in my folder. Devin stole it. Taggart judged the sky over Leo's shoulder, a dissolving brown-orange. Like heaven was a stale coke separating and settling into dissolving ice. He grunted at himself, then held up the key to his shackles. The hair on the backs of his hands had already darkened and doubled. You can sit with me for five minutes if you bring this back to me tomorrow morning, okay? You do that, and I'll buy you some stickers. Like he'd expected, the boy's cheeks undulated in a rapid nod, desperate for approval. Taggart had been like that as a kid, though scrawnier. The desperation had gotten him bit, and hell if he'd do that to another kid. He tossed the key and Leo tried to catch it, fumbled, and had to climb down the creek some to retrieve it. The boy returned with it held over his head, showing it off as proud as a golden retriever, then crossed his heart and stuck it in his overalls. Thanks for sitting with me. Mr. Cox went home sick. He usually walks me home. Your dad works? Somewhere, I guess. Mom gets mad if I ask about him. Tagger dug his heels into the soil, trying to get comfortable before the agony set in. Even though this boy blocked most of the horizon, it wouldn't matter once moonlight arrived. Half of him hoped he didn't terrify the kid into never coming back with that key. The other half longed to be stranded down here. It can be hard being a parent. You good to your mom? Good as I can be. I make her bed nice. Sometimes I give her my stickers. The ones Devin doesn't steal. And the ones you don't use in constellate. <clears throat> Taggart began to joke. Then his chest heaved and he threw himself face first into the dirt of the cave. Christ, it came earlier every day this time of year. He didn't realize he was growling until he saw the boy's mouth. It fell open like a deep gash. How sick are you, mister? Too sick. And listen, it's been five minutes. You should run along. His teeth ached threatening to pop from his gums. He tried to steady his voice and pointed out to the creek. His fingers were matted with hair now. If you follow that creek, you might circle out around your bully without him knowing. Leo swallowed, spooked enough to look at the creek with new consideration. Taggart guessed sticker buying might be canceled tomorrow. That's a good idea. Even then... The boy returned his eyes to Taggart with a wounded hope. He couldn't help but say something nice to that runt nose. You seem like a good kid. Life might suck right now, but you'll find the grip of it. Keep aware when you do. The boy shuffled his feet, and overhead, above the fanning white oak canopy, the moon winked at him. 
Taggart's lungs quaked and he rolled onto his belly, shackles rattling, whining as the vertebrae of his spine spread. The flannel strained across his shoulders, and his ears ached from how much he was suddenly hearing, including Leo's mouth breathing. You're real sick, aren't you? <clears throat> Remember to bring that key t tomorrow. Then his gums split, and teeth pattered wetly into his palm, making way for fangs that filled his mouth in a lip-tearing grin. He writhed from the dirt and saw the creek was vacant. The dumb kid had headed to the road and to his bully, bound to get beat another day. Some kids were born for abuse. All Taggart could do was pray he came back in the morning. His guts heaved and he threw his face and left shoulder into the wall so hard he felt blood mix with the soil. He hacked and thrashed to the right, spying the yellowish-white rays of something other than the sun outside. He grinded his teeth together and growled at a moon unseen and intruding. Hair wormed out between his knuckles, and he shuddered against the silver handcuffs. Their icy grip grew more intense as his nature began to offend theirs, and he hoped the roots would hold. He salivated until his lips could no longer close around his mouth, and panted, wanting to cry out, but his trachea had ruptured. This was what he always remembered, his blood wetting his appetite before he could howl, how he wanted to groan for salvation, and how the moon denied him. Rather than wolves baying at the moon, he heard a familiar adenoidal voice chanting, Devin Goon, Devin Goon, looks like a fat balloon. Come here. Give me that key. You probably stole it. The pudgy cheeks and flattened nose bounded into Taggart's view. Leo held the silver handcuff key aloft, letting it shine in the moonlight. Taggart reached for it and found his fingers had retracted into a paw. You want it? Leo then threw the key into the hole. It glittered and tumbled to within Taggart's reach, and he scooted further into the hole, hunching shoulders that tore through his flannel. Some other urge in him drooled at it and watched the key with a hunger. The urge was strong. Then Leo ran out of his vision, and a second boy fell at the mouth of the hole with a hard thump. He was taller, with broader hands, meatier to Taggart's warping eyes, and his head switched between this new boy and to the key between his paws. Taggart tried to yell at him, tried to call out his name, to guess that he was Devon, but he couldn't. He tried to growl or bay, to howl at the moon, Yet his throat wasn't finished remodeling. His snout and fangs were finished, though. Pointed teeth clicking together. Too quiet to stop Devon from reaching into the hole to retrieve the key. To within snatching distance. By then, Taggart was hardly Taggart. He was a set of warped eyes watching the descent. And by the time he could growl... He snagged Devon's yellow backpack in his claws. Wolf ears ticked to hear him scream, and his sneakers scuffle 
and frogs chirp on the creek. Night wind rising. And somewhere, adenoidal singing about the constellations that were out tonight. It's natural to want to protect loved ones. And even when they say they can handle themselves, sometimes they need a helping hand. That's what Charlie believed when he finally decided to repay his sister for all the help she'd given him as a child. But in this tale, shared with us by author Ellie Ryder, we discover that not only can Charlie's sister protect herself, the thing she's protecting herself from isn't quite what her brother expected. Performing this tale are Kyle Akers, Addison Peacock, Jesse Cornett, and Aaron Lillis. So remember, not everything is what it seems, and bad people can surprise you in the worst ways, as Charlie tells us in I Remember Annie. I was 12, the first time I knew my sister killed someone. Could have happened before then, no doubt, but after Pete Murphy hit me so hard upside the head I fell off my bike and dropped my backpack, Annie kicked Pete square in the nuts with all the might an eight-year-old girl could muster. I swore for years afterward a white light flashed when she connected, coming from somewhere inside her. Pete fell and writhed in a puddle of his own vomit. All the kids standing around us, most of them just off the afternoon bus, laughed. You leave Charlie alone! Then she spit on Pete. He never messed with me or anyone again. A year later, Pete died. Cancer, everyone said. I didn't think you could die from a kick to the nuts, but if it was cancer, I knew in my heart that whatever burning hot power Annie tapped into that day put the cancer in Pete. I'd swear to it. And I knew I owed her for it. Now... Twenty years later, I thought I was finally returning the favor. I'd tried before, and she'd always shooed me away, later seeming no worse for wear. Tried to warn her about boys, tried to give her gifts like pepper spray and pocket knives. Warned her to not walk alone, to stay out of parking lots, and to always watch her shoulders. She'd always laughed me off. I'd always tried, and she'd always seem okay without me. This time, though... I white-knuckled the Caprice's steering wheel while my sister stared over the back passenger seat, her hands cradling her child's swollen belly. She grimaced. Dark clouds hung over the city far behind us, stretching over the miles of desert we'd already traveled. Lightning flashed. Thunder chased it close. The Caprice's motor thrummed. It's okay now. We're gonna be okay. I've got you, kid. She laughed. It was an empty sound. <sighs> No, Charlie, you don't. And don't call me kid. Rain splattered the car's roof and windshield. The air darkened. She stared through it. 
We'd been plowing through the rain long enough to drain the Caprice's tank to fumes when the horizon birthed a dilapidated building on the side of the road. Though it was still early afternoon, the cloud cover and thick rain grayed out the sand-blasted stucco and paint-peeled wood signage. Another crackle of lightning burned the building's outline into my retinas. The Caprice shuddered and choked. We can't stop here. No choice. It's here or walk. I stole a sideways look at her. Her bruises were dark and fresh. I gasped so hard I almost choked when she'd opened her door. Shouldn't have come. Her swollen lips muffled the words as she blinked nervously, looking over her shoulder into the apartment behind her. A curtain of earthy dampness hung on the air inside. That motherfucker do this to you? (sighs) I always knew she was special. So strong and good. I couldn't figure out how she always ended up with the wrong kinds of guys. She was always with some serious piece of shit who didn't deserve her. And my only solace was that every time she eventually wised up. Every subsequent relationship was worse, it seemed like. And it took her longer to get out and recover of each one, but she did move on. She didn't talk much about any of them, but had been especially quiet about this one. Seemed afraid to even say his name. So in that, I guess I knew enough. I'll kill him. She'd shaken her head. No, you won't. Can't do anything about it. You'll only make it worse. She disappeared into the apartment, returned a moment later without having made a sound. You think I'm going to let him get away with this? It's you getting away, Charlie. She'd tossed me a backpack and shoved me toward the car, waddling behind me, and then slid carefully into the passenger seat. She shifted there now, clearly stiff and uncomfortable, her feet resting on the backpack on the floorboard. She looked into the darkness behind us, around us. Rain hissed on the road and beat the Caprice's metal and glass. Can't stop. Not here. See any other gas around? We coasted to a stop next to an analog display gas pump, something I hadn't seen outside movies in years. A corrugated metal roof covered the pump. The makeshift carport screamed under the onslaught of rain. The hand-painted sign lashed the building's roof. Diner and gas swayed in the deluge. Annie searched the black sky, chewing her lip. I opened my door, and Annie jumped. You okay, kid? Don't fucking call me kid. The pump's handle didn't quite reach the Caprice's trunk-mounted gas tank, so I had to push it the last two or three feet. That was the car's only downside. It was a two-ton tank wrapped around the most luxurious bench seats I'd ever slept on. But fuck trying to push the thing. I hung the pump in the Caprice's fill tube and wedged the lever open. The rain was cold and bit through my thin jacket. I'd left the driver door open and Annie shivered. She slid out, stood next to me, and I threw my arm over her shoulder. Freezing. And starving. We don't have a lot of time. But the baby is kicking the shit out of my ribs. Hangry. Let's be quick. We went inside, the rain soaking us to the bone on the way. A raspy voice crept out of the darkness. Power's out. Pump's running. I inhaled, tasted stale dust and ancient cleaner. An odd must hung in the air, the same smell of wet earth coming out of Annie's apartment. The memory wriggled in the back of my mind. We dripped water on the floor. Different breaker. Annie took my hand. A match popped yellow and glowed on a deep-lined scowl. Take a second for the candles. 
Annie dug her nails into my hand. I jumped a little at the pain. Thought for a moment something had stabbed out of the dark to reel us in. Lightning cracked again, loud enough to shake the building's windows. I jumped harder that time, and Annie's nails dragged across my palm. The flash lit the room for just an instant. A few spinning racks half-stocked with single-serving chip and jerky bags sat near the counter, which stretched the length of the room, leaving very little space near the wall farthest from the door, where a shadow-edged figure stood and stared. Even in the flash of light, it was only a silhouette. A man, broad-shouldered and angular. He waved, then the room went dark. Charlie! Annie pulled me toward the door. Then, feeling both invasive and comforting, her voice flashed across my mind. We need to leave. Now. She hadn't spoken out loud. Yep. My out loud response felt as natural as Annie's telepathy. I followed her, my hand weeping blood between her fingers. Annie kept pulling. The lights buzzed on just before we hit the door, coating the room in an orange-yellow haze. The figure in the corner still stared the light not quite having reached his space against the wall. The rest of the room felt warmer, though. Almost comfortable. My sense of alarm began to fade. Huh. The old man behind the counter didn't seem to notice the figure in the corner. It's ugly out there. Yeah. Let's go! Annie clamped down on my hand again and yanked me through the front door. Lightning shattered the sky, its explosion ear-splitting and immediate. The shop's lights died. I slipped Annie's grip and fell, catching myself on my palms and rolling onto my back. The rocks stung my gouged hand. The man against the wall had come out of the shadows to the front of the shop, looking more powerful in the darkness just inside the glass doors. His eyes shone hot in the dark. I stood, half on my own and half on Annie's arm, who... My mind reeled. She couldn't be in both places at once, could she? Was also behind the wheel, key turning the motor over. Thumbnail-sized chunks of hail pelted my face, my back. It rattled on the metal above the pump, chipping the Caprice's paint where it snuck past the carport. There was no sound other than the frozen sky crashing to the ground. Hurry the fuck up, Charlie! Get in the car! Annie's voice again, already between my ears without having traveled through them. The storm's horrific noise would have drowned her out otherwise. I bolted for the car, pulling the pump out of the fill tube and tossing it to the ground in one motion. And before I'd shut the passenger door, Annie floored the accelerator, spinning the back wheels on the gravel before they caught and shot us out onto the road. That was him, Charlie. That was fucking him. What are you talking about? We didn't get away. God damn it. You didn't get away. What the hell are you talking about? Annie slapped tears off her cheeks with one hand and wrestled the steering wheel with the other. Hail and wind pummeled the caprice, overwhelmed the wipers and headlights, but Annie drove faster. Her massive belly rubbed against the steering wheel. Oh, we're so damn dense, you know that? You should have left me there. I should have sent you away. Should have shut the door in your face. And now we're... He's... Hey, slow down. The Caprice wobbled. It was a feeling I didn't recognize. The car's weight normally keeps it stable and true. There was nothing but thick hail and darkness through the windshield. My heart slammed in my chest. You don't understand. Annie swallowed, looked at me, and then back at the road. I had him beaten. Finally, I had a plan. And you... I couldn't just leave you, damn it. And now we're fucked. Easy, kid. Easy. 
The caprice shook. I gulped. Don't fucking call me! She grimaced, took a hand off the steering wheel, and clutched her stomach. The caprice lurched. Lightning blasted the desert with hard light that glinted off the barrage of sharp hailstones cutting the night. I squinted, held my hands up to shield my eyes. The shadow man stood on the double yellow in the middle of the road, hail swirling around him and skittering on the ground, but never touching him. His glowing eyes burned hotter, and under them I could almost make out a slight, victorious smile. I reached over and yanked the wheel. The Caprice's rear end slid on the wet asphalt, and the slow-motion clarity of adrenaline crystallized my vision. The Caprice's front end circled around the shadow man, who patted the hood like the car was an obedient dog. The shadow man waved at me, that victorious smile visible in the Caprice's headlights. His teeth were jagged hailstones, his mouth a dark storm flashing lightning in his throat. The car kept spinning, and I smacked my head on the dash. Darkness. Choking. I tasted petrichor. I opened my eyes. A soft rain velveted the Caprice's hood. The driver's seat was empty, the door hanging open over the road's sopping shoulder. The windshield wipers flipped back and forth. Annie? My throat closed around her name. She was gone. I stepped out of the car and sank into the muddy shoulder. In the wet darkness, the desert plain was infinite and featureless. And I felt lost everywhere and nowhere all at once. On the ground next to the driver's seat, in the weak glow of the Caprice's dome light, her backpack lay slightly open, revealing a mass of bound and curled bills taking on water. A few unfurled in the wind, flapping Benjamin Franklin's profile back and forth. One escaped and fluttered out into the night. Go, Charlie. Leave. Take it and go. Her voice spiked hard in my head, and I winced. The money, enough to disappear, I thought, was for me. She was sending me away. Near the backpack, a furrowed trail in the mud. A body's drag marks led away from the car. Blood tinged the water collected in the ruts. A few feet away, Annie's shoes stuck out of the mud. The sole was half torn off. Annie! The wind swallowed my voice. I threw the pack into the car and followed drag marks with my eyes. Tracked them over the shoulder and into the night-shrouded sage and puff grass dotting the desert floor. I'd need lights and something a few bushes wouldn't slow down. Something heavy enough to keep moving through wet sand. Something with mass and momentum. A tank. I turned back to the caprice. Its wipers flipped back and forth. One of the tires had pulled off the rim, and I sat in the wet road to change it, mashing my thumb with the tire iron in my hurry. I punched the caprice's quarter panel in anger, and it rocked on the jack. I froze. The car settled. The rain thickened and hail stabbed down again before I finished the tire. When I was done, my hand and thumb bled openly. My teeth chattered, and my soaked shirt stuck to my ribs. I threw the jack and bad tire into the trunk, slammed the lid, and the hail intensified, roaring down again. Inside the car, I cranked the heater, slammed into drive. No, Charlie, leave now. Go away. Lightning flashed. In the distance, among the low-slung shadows of small Creosote and Yucca, the shadow man stood over a heap on the ground. His eyes glowed. In their light, 
Annie's hand, palm up and reaching, flashed white. Go, Charlie! Fuck that. I floored it. The rear wheel spun on the road, then in the mud, and then the front end bounced over the lip of the shoulder, and I plowed over plants and twigs, barreling along. A rabbit darted out of the headlight's beams. The shadow man looked at me, eyes burning stars against the darkness of a silhouette. Darkness that didn't change even though it was square in the Caprice's headlights. And there was Annie, on the ground, her knees, something squirming on the ground in front of her, still connected to her. I bore down. Closer now, I could see Annie's color, pale, bruised, shadows around her bloodshot eyes. Her hands were slick with blood, caked with sand, and she pushed away from the shadow man, away from the icord-covered newborn in front of her. It crawled toward the shadow man, still tethered to Annie, struggling against her but making progress, dragging her toward the shadow man, despite her clawing against the sand. (coughs) Annie's scream pounded both inside and outside my ears. My vision doubled, my eyes watered, and something hot flowed from my right ear. The horizon tilted, swayed back, and I vomited steaming bile onto my lap. It's too late, Charlie. My God, it's too late, too late, too late, too late, too late. Lightning forked at the Shadow Man, seemingly from inside Annie, blinding me. The Caprice caught a rut in the mud, slamming the front end to the right. Then the whole thunderous machine popped into the air, barrel rolling over and over. Metal crunched and glass broke, and my forearm folded neatly to the right before my torso slammed against and broke through the steering wheel, and then bounced away. I knew I was spinning, but I couldn't see anything except the flash of light still cooking my retinas. My screaming mixed with the sound of the caprice coming apart around me. And then, I was still. The world was quiet. Dark cold. And that was all. For a moment. Then, somewhere beyond my closed eyelids, beyond the limits of my own space, lights flashed white and red and dark, 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 and then light again. I twitched, tried to open my eyes. Explosions rocked. I twitched again, and finally, my own name dragged me out of unconsciousness. Charlie? I opened my eyes blinked away the sand and the blood. Charlie. I pushed myself off the ground with my good left arm, caught a look at my right-angled forearm, and fell woozily back to the ground. Charlie. Up again, the world dissolving into pain and light around me. I shielded my eyes, stumbled, screamed after trying to balance with my broken arm. Charlie. My vision cleared. Annie stood not ten feet from him, her belly torn open and leaking thick, dark fluid. The shadow man lay on the ground, steam rising from his twitching body. His hands covered his eyes. Annie held the baby. Uh, Not a baby, I saw then. A thing with sharp eyebrows and ears and chin, nostrils flared thin and angular, by the head, its body hanging above and twitching in time with the shadow man on the ground. Annie's fingers dug into its eyes and mouth. Charlie. Annie looked at me. I never needed saving. She crushed the thing's head, and it stopped twitching. The shadow man evaporated into black smoke. 
The thing shriveled to a husk, and he dropped it into the mud, where it dissolved into nothing. Then she pointed at me. Go! Something pushed hard in my mind. It was the hospital beeps that woke me. The machines telling me I was still alive and should wake. A young man in scrubs saw me and ran from the room, returned with an older woman in a lab coat who shined a light in my pupils, put a firm hand on my chest, and told me to relax, that I'd had an accident. Do you remember anything? I remember Annie. I turned my head away from the doctor's light. In a chair against the wall, Annie's backpack sat mud-crusted and zipped closed. Uh Uh-huh. Is Annie important? Can you remember why? Pete Murphy. Annie and the light she summoned from within. The power. How she'd laughed off all my warnings, never concerned for her own safety. How she'd always seemed tired, never smiling with her whole heart, but always given me anything I'd asked for. How she'd always seemed to know more about strength and survival than I ever did. I remembered the string of shitty boyfriends she ran through. How they never popped back into her life the way shitty boyfriends always did. Once they were gone, they stayed gone. The Shadow Man and his offspring. The evil I saw there. Annie, so strong and special. Always shutting it down. Always somehow doing better than I was. She always found a way. For herself and now for me. I finally clicked. She never needed me. All my strength, my mass, my momentum. I'd always needed her. Always. Everything else? I remember everything. The term transcranial magnetic stimulation might not be a familiar one to everyone. It's a non-invasive technique in which parts of the brain are magnetically stimulated to improve symptoms of depression and OCD, among other things. That's what the professor in this tale, shared with us by author John Foster, is experimenting with. Only this professor's experiment leads to some unexpected results. Performing this tale are Jeff Clement, Matthew Bradford, and Andy Cresswell. So let this be a lesson to you. Just because something might produce surprising results doesn't mean it's a good idea to replicate it again and again. At least not when it leads to the incidental discovery of the paranormal. Transcranial Magnetic Stimulation, TMS for short, is the process of using a high-powered magnetic wand to affect brain function in specific locations. The process works by disrupting the electric signals traveling in the brain that tell when to fire. The result of this is a disruption in the function of that region of the brain, resulting in the impairment of the ability associated with that region. 
This has been used as a safe way to determine brain region functionality through the benign stimulation of brain lesions and damage. The process is also used to alter mood and alleviate depressive episodes. I fell in love with the process in my senior year of college when I heard about it during a neuroscience lecture. Seeing the process in action only furthered my interest in it. Limitless potential and advancements to be made all from a handheld electromagnet. I had to hold off indulging in this fantasy until I was actually allowed to run the machinery myself, which was six years after I had first heard of it. With a newly received PhD, a position at a well-off private school, and my own lab to operate, I was free to explore the process to my funding's content. I started off just testing the machine, getting a feel for the whole thing. With plenty of students to rely on, I knew that participants would not be an issue. Once some of the more research-interested students took part in the tests, they were all asking to work in the lab. Not wanting to get the place crowded, I took on only two students, Peter and Susan. They were both freshmen at the university, and both knew well enough that working with a professor was a good way of getting noticed for postgraduate education. I was happier to know that I would have two constant subjects that could provide a more stable source of data. A few months into working with me, I decided to finally start teaching them how to run the machines themselves figuring it would be a good way of convincing the department to allocate funding towards getting a second machine. Susan got the hang of it fairly quickly, while Peter was a bit slow to take to it. Then they both began to learn which areas would have what effect when the wand was placed on them. A couple months later, and they were trained enough to perform the tests on their own. Not that I would allow them, though. I was not going to run the risk of anything happening to the machine while I was not in the room. The first incident occurred a couple of weeks after I had finished teaching them how to operate the machine. I was at my computer finishing grading some tests while Susan practiced using the wand on Peter. They were both enjoying watching as Peter suddenly could not write anymore or lost the ability to speak clearly, only to have it stop with a quick move of the wand. I had completely zoned out while reading through essays when I noticed that they had stopped talking. All I could hear was Peter whispering something to himself. Figuring Susan had hit on a spot I hadn't before, I went over to see what was going on. From what I could gather from Peter's whispers, he was having some sort of hallucination. I wasn't able to make out what he was saying, so I told Susan to switch the machine off. I squatted down in front of Peter so I could look at his eyes. His pupils were slowly contracting from an excessively dilated state. Peter? Peter, can you hear me? What's going on? He shook his head slightly and groaned. His eyes focused on me and then looked around the room. I I saw something, Dr. Matthews. It was really blurry and out of focus. Dark, too, but it suddenly appeared out of nowhere. I had never seen nor read about anything like this happening before with TMS. At the time, I figured that Susan had just managed to hit on some spot on the visual cortex and cause Peter to hallucinate the shape that he saw. I gave Peter the once over to make sure that he was alright and told the two of them that they could go home for the day. Once the two of them had left, I sat down at the machine's computer and looked over the data on Peter's test. 
I moved through the scan of his brain following the path of the wand, up to the place where it had stopped. As I had thought, it did indeed linger on the visual cortex, but I had never seen any report on hallucinations caused by TMS. The waves shouldn't have been able to penetrate deep enough to cause something like that to happen. I marked the spot that appeared to cause the hallucination, all the while thinking about what it could mean, and the possibility of a breakthrough discovery that would make my name known in the field. I decided to call the spot the Matthews Node. A few days later, I met with a colleague of mine, Dr. Richard Brumbaugh, for lunch. Richard was fascinated by anything to do with fringe science, most of which I regarded as pseudoscience. But he was a well-respected member of the university, regardless of his views. I told him what had happened with Peter during the last session with the machine. Throughout my telling of the story, he sat quietly, only nodding to indicate his interest. Once I was done, he leaned over the table and began talking to me in a hushed tone. Listen to me, Frank. I think you're crossing the threshold of something here. Something beyond the veil of the known sciences. Things like what that young man saw are very similar to things that have been written about throughout the centuries. Things that lurk where we cannot see. Things from other worlds, other dimensions. A link could have been found to something that, until now, had always been written off as myth. If what you are saying is true, and the boy is to be believed, well, it could be something bigger than anything you could have imagined going in. <laughs> I'm sorry, Richard, but Peter clearly just had a hallucination. There could have been plenty of things that could have caused it to happen, and just mere coincidence that it happened during the test. Well, if you're so sure it was something in his own mind, then let me come and sit in the next time you decide to run it. Hell, I'll even let you do it on me. That way we will both know for sure who was right. I sighed and pinched the bridge of my nose. I didn't want Richard to worry Peter and Susan with his theories. But at the same time, it didn't feel right to just ignore what had happened, both as a scientist and as being responsible for anything that happens in the lab. I stood to gather my things. All right. We can do it in a few days. I'll email you when I know the time. I walked out the door without looking back. The day Richard was to sit in on the test came quickly. I wasn't sure that I was even prepared for what could happen. Everything was set up as usual. Susan and Peter were present as well though Peter looked somewhat hesitant about the test. Richard came in, greeted the two students, and sat in the chair by the machine. He looked eager to get things started, and I felt eager, hoping that this would prove him wrong. Ready when you are, Frank? Richard smiled, rubbing his hands together like a kid in a candy store. And do promise to actually put merit in what I say. Contrary to what some may think, I am a man of science... I'm not about to just start lying just to prove you wrong. Just sit back and relax, Richard. I want to know the truth behind this as much as you do. I'll trust you. I placed a thin cap on Richard's head, finished the setup of the machine, and went about locating the Matthews node on the brain scan that corresponded to the one from Peter's. Once I had a rough estimate of where it should be, 
I turned the wand on and began moving it around Richard's head. All right, tell me if you start to see anything, and let me know if you need to stop at any time. I continued to move the wand around the Matthews node, and Richard remained quiet. I peered over to look at his face, and his eyes moved up to meet mine. He gave a smile. After five minutes of slowly covering every centimeter of the already small enough area, I was about ready to end it, relieved to say that I was right. Just as I was about to open my mouth, Richard gasped. (gasps) He lifted his hand and pointed to the corner across from him. In the corner, I see it. Frank, I see it. Richard started to breathe heavily. I went to move the wand away, but his hand shot back and stopped me. No. No. Frank, leave it. There's... There's more. More what, Richard? You've seen what you needed to, so let's stop this. I heard a gasp next to me. I looked over and saw Peter stepping away. Dr. Matthews, I see that thing again. I started to panic. I tried to pull the wand away, but Richard had a strong hold on my hand, strong enough to start hurting. Richard, that is enough. Let go now, this is over. But he didn't seem to notice me. Richard wasn't making any sound anymore, and Peter began to scream. I turned to look at Susan. She stood there, stock still. Susan! Susan, turn the machine off! It took her a few moments to register what I was saying. She ran over and started unplugging wires. (laughs) The monitor on the machine went black as Peter fell to the floor and Richard slumped down in the chair. I dropped a wand out of the floor and ran around the chair to Richard. His eyes were closed and his mouth was agape. I grabbed his shoulders and shook him, but he didn't wake up. I checked his pulse. He was still alive. I looked over to Susan, who was doing the same to Peter. Call 911. She walked out of the room and I went over to Peter. Susan had flipped him over. His face was frozen in a contortion of terror. Small droplets of blood had collected in the corners of his eyes. I stood up, picked the wand up off the floor, and stared at it until the emergency services arrived. Richard was released from the hospital after a couple of days. The doctors didn't find anything wrong with him, and they figured there must have been a malfunction with the machine and it had given him a powerful shock. Peter went into a coma after the test. They figured that he had had an aneurysm based off of what they had found. The doctors had no idea how long the coma would last, or even if he would wake up at all. I felt fully responsible for what had happened. After the first incident with Peter, I should have just left everything well enough alone. But all I could think about at the time was the fame that would have come with it. Of course, once the university had found out what had happened, they closed my lab. 
due to the medical reports and the lack of information Susan would give me, I was surprised to find the school hadn't actually fired me, allowing me to continue teaching until they could figure out what had happened with the machine. I caught up with Richard not long after he had gotten out of the hospital. I met him in his office, as I needed to know what had happened, what he had seen. It was... it was surreal, Frank. That's all I can really say about it. His face turned pale at the thought of it all, turning his attention away from the letter he had been writing. Well, what did you see? You must have seen something. Was it the same thing Peter saw? I don't know what the boy saw, but I hope for his sake it wasn't the same thing I saw. And I would encourage you, Dr. Matthews, to stay far away from that line of research and cease all thoughts of future endeavors immediately. Surely whatever it was couldn't have been that dangerous. It was all just visions, your mind playing tricks on you. Nothing more than that. No, no. What I saw was no mere illusion. If I were to theorize about it, I would say whatever part of the brain the TMS interfered with, it evolved to protect humanity from whatever those things were that the boy and I saw. Some things weren't meant to be seen, Frank. Things out there that have been long forgotten. Things that are better left in the realm of myth and legend. Do you hear yourself? Richard, if what you're saying is true, it's what you've spent your career looking for. Now that you have it, you're you're just going to let it go? Yes, I am. And you should, too. Like I said, some things are better left in the dark. Now, please leave me. I have work to do. He looked back down and continued his letter in earnest. I stared at Richard for what felt like an hour, surprise preventing me from doing anything. I finally broke out of my stupor and walked out, shutting the door behind me. I stood in the hallway, wondering what it was he really saw. What could make a man like him give up on everything so easily? They found Richard dead a month later. He stopped showing up to his lectures, and after a couple of days of hearing nothing from him, the school went to search his office. The doctors say it was a stroke, but he was sitting in his office writing and it just suddenly happened. He was old, not the healthiest, they weren't too surprised. As for what he was writing, no one could make it out. The stroke appeared to have hit his motor functions in his writing hand, causing everything to be made illegible. Even still, Peter remained in the coma. The doctors still had no idea how it would go. Susan had dropped out of the semester, though I couldn't blame her for that. She and Peter had grown close over the few months in the lab, and she had been taking the whole thing hard. After Richard's death, I wasn't able to cope with things anymore. I decided that I needed to know what had happened to them, what they had seen. Neither of them would be able to tell me now, so I had to find it out on my own.
A few nights after Richard's body was found, I went to my lab on campus. The techs that had been working on the machine were all gone and no one else was around. I loaded up a scan of my brain and found the Matthews node that I needed to hit. I turned the magnet on and sat in the chair. I took a deep breath and started moving the wand around the back of my head. As soon as the wand hit the spot, the room dimmed. I felt my body lock up, my arms no longer obeying me. Slowly from the darkness that had fallen on the corner of the room, thick, inky tendrils began to move out, spreading across the floor. My heart began beating faster as I tried fruitlessly to move my arms. I had realized now how grave an error I had made by doing this. I hadn't learnt from what I had seen. As the tendrils stretched further out, their owners began to be pulled out. There were three of them, all made from the same abyssal black substance as the tendrils that moved them. One was tall and featureless, hunching over in the room, long arms reaching to the ground. Its thin frame pressed against the ceiling, falling bits of plaster betraying the unexpected strength in its emaciated body. Another was short and fat. A cavernous mouth split the face open with a purple bulbous tongue constantly running over rows of large, flat teeth. The final one was a writhing mass of tendrils, all sliding over in between one another like a pit of snakes. A yellow eye with a slit pupil appeared in the gaps of the mass. The three fixed their attention on me. Time seems to have slowed down, either from fear or some force given off by these beings. The fat one began to move its mouth, the tongue relaxing and contracting. I realized that it must have been trying to make some kind of sound, but one I was unable to hear. I reasoned that since I was only seeing them due to the stimulation of my visual cortex, then that was the only modality I could sense them in. They must have realized something similar, as not long after, the tall one reached over to grab my hand and move the wand. Once the wand left the area, I could no longer see them, but they still knew of me. It moved the wand up to the top of my head, where the somatosensory cortex is, allowing me to sense them with a touch. As soon as it reached the area, my hand began to burn with an icy fire. The darkness of the thing was so unnatural that it made it feel as though it were forcing my skin away from it. My body clenched and I grimaced. The thing lingered there for a while before moving down to the auditory cortex. When it arrived at its destination... I was overwhelmed with a crushing sound of absolute external silence. I heard the sounds of my body panicking, though. The blood rushing through my veins and the thunderous applause of my heart reaching its limit. That suffering was soon replaced by a greater one. 
A deep and monstrous rumbling flooded my ears, mixed with wet slurping and clacking teeth. I could make out what I could only assume were words from the sickening cacophony. They sounded old. A language so ancient and forgotten that perhaps no memory of it remained. The alien language continued, and I could feel it pushing into my mind. My psyche screamed, pained by a language it was not meant to hear. I squirmed in agony as the voice began to change, and the sharp pains of the strange words began to dull and soften. I soon realized that I was hearing that old tongue no longer. The words in my ear were more modern. I could understand what it was telling me. The dissonance of something like those things making sounds that were so painfully human was too much to bear. I could feel my mind slowing down, the room growing dark. I tried to adjust myself to stay seated, but I still had no control over my body. As the world began to fade away, my tenuous grip on reality floating away from me. I felt the wand drop onto my head and fall to the floor. And then, I was in darkness. I woke up in the hospital a few days later. My head ached, and my body felt fatigued. At first, my memory of the event was hazy. A portrait of the events covered by frosted glass. It wasn't long before I could recall what had happened. The machine. The creatures I had seen. I told the doctors that I couldn't remember anything. If I told them the truth, I'd only have to spend more time having tests run on me. No one would believe what I had seen, and I wasn't sure if they actually could. When I was discharged, I went straight back to the university. The only thing I could do to make amends for what I had caused would be to destroy all of my research. Richard was right. I should have gotten rid of all of it weeks ago, but my pride wouldn't allow it. As I exited the stairwell, I looked down the hallway towards my lab and saw a man in a suit walking out with a box. I ran towards the door as he reached the other end of the hallway. My office had been ransacked. Everything was gone. The machine the computers, all of my work on TMS. Nothing was left. I looked out the window to see the man load the box onto a van before driving away. I dropped down onto my knees and put my head in my hands. I recount this now as a confession. I pushed the boundaries of science and in doing so, let my toe cross that line just a little bit. Evolution allows for things to advance, to give protection that ensures survival. We evolved to protect ourselves from these things. They could only harm us if we could perceive them. 
I wouldn't even want to explore the possibilities that could come from harnessing them. Whatever is to come from unlocking the secrets that kept them hidden from us, I take full responsibility. And that guilt is too much for my shoulders to bear. Just like it was for Richard. Finally, I speak this as a warning. Because just as I was losing consciousness in the lab, the thing that was talking was able to reach the English language. And all it was saying over and over was thank you. Older people can accumulate some really remarkable items throughout their years. They have all sorts of strange items lying around, like newspapers from 1942 or their best friend's jawbone. What you don't usually expect to find, though, is a book that can inflict upon its reader whatever happens to its pages. However, in this tale, shared with us by author Blair Daniels, that's exactly what one woman finds. And as with any potentially lethal object, she is, of course, compelled to test its limits. Performing this tale are Jessica McAvoy, Nicole Goodnight, Erica Sanderson, and Graham Rowett. So try not to get a paper cut and certainly don't crack the spine, at least not when you're reading The Book of Skin. The bigger the house, the harder it is to clean. That's what I learned working for Sharon. She liked the big houses, sure. She got to cook in the gorgeous kitchens and chit-chat with the wealthy residents. Me? I got the scut work, scrubbing bathtubs as big as jacuzzis and mopping floors three times the size of my apartment. We pulled into the Thompson's driveway on a Wednesday afternoon just as the sun began to set. This house wasn't like the others. The faded, rust-red brick facade reminded me of all the other crumbling institutions in town, not old-time elegance. The driveway buckled and cracked, tufts of green grass creeping through the gaps. Sharon stuck her key in the lock. Nice, isn't it? Sure, beautiful. We stepped into the foyer. The house was dark. Heavy shadows stretched across the carpet. The high ceiling stretched above us, dark and cavernous. Sharon led me through a dark hallway into the living room and spoke to a lump of blankets on the couch. I'm here, Mildred. Brought a friend to help me. She'll clean the library while I cook your stew, okay? The red blanket slipped, 
revealing the other half of the woman's face. She looked as most old women do, sunken skin, brittle white hair. The only thing that set her apart were her brown, nearly black eyes. The library? Yes. You said you wanted everything dusted and polished, didn't you? Oh, yes. She nodded. Her old bones crackled with the movement. What's your name? Mary. Mary. Come closer. I took a hesitant step forward. The smell of must and bad breath washed over me. Yes, Mrs. Thompson? Mildred's hand shot out from the mess of blankets. It latched onto mine in a painful vice grip. Don't touch the books. Uh, what? Whatever you do, don't touch any of the books. But I'm supposed to clean- Don't touch the books! They're my Andrews. His research, his journals. Don't touch the books or- Okay, Mildred. Sharon stepped forward, laying a hand on her. She won't touch the books. She heard you. The grip released. Mildred sank back into the blankets and closed her eyes, her breaths ragged and loud. Sharon tenderly stroked the old woman's hair. Are you okay? Fine. Okay. Come on, Mary. I'll show you where the library is. I followed her through the corridor, nervously fidgeting with my necklace. Deer heads hung on the walls. Black eyes fur matted with dust. An old, dented suit of armor leaned against the corner, missing a few panels. At the end of the room stood ornate French doors. Here it is. Sharon swung the doors open. She forced a mop into my hands. Mop the floor, polish the globe. I'll meet up with you in about an hour, after I've got dinner on. But not the books. Oh, don't worry about her. She's just a little nervous around new people. Sharon spun to leave. But sure, don't clean the books. Less work for you, right? She pulled the doors shut. I plopped the bucket on the floor. The soapy water sloshed inside. I dipped the mop in, ran it across the oak floor. The wet swipes glistened under the light of the chandelier. The library was beautiful, even under the layers of dust. Oak-paneled walls, covered in bookshelves. A bay window facing the woods. Above the stairs, a painting of an olive-skinned man with gleaming black eyes. Andrew Thompson, according to the nameplate. I swiped the mop across the floor. In less than 20 minutes, I was done. The library wasn't that large, and nearly empty, save for the books. I turned my gaze upwards. Do I really have to mop the upstairs? I eyed the curved staircase snaking up the wall. Mildred probably can't even climb the steps, right? Ah, but Sharon can. Knowing her, she'll check my work. I sighed and climbed the stairs. Each step groaned beneath me. Whoa. The books up here were different. Not battered textbooks and encyclopedias or trashy paperbacks like on the shelves below. These were dark, leather-bound tomes, bearing no markings on the spine. Bet these are old. 
and valuable. Curious, I finally pulled one from the shelf. On the cover was no writing, just a symbol. A seven-pointed star embossed in gold. I flipped it open. Snatches of sentences leapt out at me from the yellowed paper. Place a lit candle at each apex. Represents darkness, plague, infection. One drop for each year on this earth. One page in the middle had no text. Just a large drawing of a seven-pointed star and a woman kneeling in the center. I pushed the book back onto the shelf. When I finished mopping, I collapsed into one of the armchairs next to a small coffee table. That's when I noticed the book on the table. Unlike the rest of the library, it was clean, not a spot of dust on it. That's weird. No one's been up here for months, probably. Mildred can't even climb these stairs. So who pulled it from the shelf? I grimaced, deep in thought. Unless Sharon pulled it out? Sharon, snooping. That was difficult to imagine. I stood up and leaned over the book. The cover was a lighter leather than the other books. Golden tan, with darker patches and a few brown spots speckling the surface. No title, no symbols, no markings of any kind. I reached out a hand. Softly, my fingers skimmed the cover. I froze. A light touch caressed my back. I whipped around. Sharon? Hello? No reply. The room was empty. Just the dark oak walls. The endless rows of strange books. The portrait of Andrew Thompson watched me, his dark eyes glittering with mirth. Even I'm going crazy in this creepy old house. I guess that's how Mildred got to be... how she is. I plopped down on the armchair again, massaging my temples. My legs ached. My back stung. My eyes fell on the book again. I picked it up. Hands pressed into my back. Hard. I leapt off the armchair. Who's there? But the upstairs of the library was completely empty. I peered over the banister, but everything was as I left it. The wet floor, the shining globe, the untouched books. No one was there. My heart thrummed in my chest. Goosebumps spread up my arms. What the hell is going on? Shaking, I returned to the seat. No. The leather of the book was covered in small, prickly bumps. What the hell? I looked down at my own arms, then at the book. There was no mistaking it. They were both covered in the same minuscule bumps. Heart pounding, I pressed two fingers into the tan leather, depressing it. At the exact same moment, I felt two fingers press into my spine. I backed away, panting, heart pounding. What the hell is this thing? What sort of crazy illusion is this? My foot caught on the mop. I flew backwards. Hot pain shot through my back as the mop handle jabbed into my shoulder blades. 
The stairs lay a dizzying few feet away from where I'd fallen. Missed by an inch, missed by a yard. I stumbled to get to my feet. I grasped the railing, the wood growing slick with my sweat. As I did, I took one last glance back at the book. A purple line ran across the cover. The impression of a mop handle. Sharon? Sharon? I flew towards the kitchen, yelling at the top of my lungs. Sharon! The aroma of beef stew hung heavy in the air. On the stove sat a pot, curls of steam rising towards the ceiling. Sharon didn't look up. What? There's a book in the library. (sighs) Well, of course there's a book in the library, Mary. No! I mean, a terrible book. I touched it and... (laughs) Didn't heed Mildred's warnings, I see. I grabbed her by the shoulders. Sharon, listen to me! Hey, get your hands off me. Come with me to the library. Okay, fine, fine. I'm coming. Sharon fiddled with the dial on the stove. The flame underneath the pot shrunk. I led Sharon into the library my legs shaking underneath me. Without a word, I yanked Sharon up the stairs. We stepped over the mop and stared at the little coffee table. That book. Sharon raised an eyebrow. Okay, it's a little weird looking, I'll give you that. Touch it. Sharon shot me a weird, questioning look. Then she approached the table. With a steady hand, she reached out and poked the front cover. She jumped. Hey, don't go poking me like that. That wasn't me. What are you talking about? Of course it was you. I'll leave the room, then touch it again. I decisively turned around and descended the stairs. As soon as I shut the library doors behind me, I heard the scream. I pulled the doors open to find Sharon clamoring down the stairs, bits of auburn curl falling around her face. Don't touch that book. That one is, well... Never mind. Just just stay away from it. Why? What do you know about it? I, I don't know anything about it. I just think Mildred asked us not to. Sharon ran a hand across her forehead, pushing the damp curls from her face. Just finish up cleaning, okay? Come to the kitchen when you're done. I'll drop you off at home. I waited until Sharon's footsteps faded into silence. Then I raced back into the library and up the stairs. The initial shock had worn off. My fear had evaporated, leaving behind an itching, morbid curiosity. I ran over to the table, poked the cover of the book. I felt the familiar warm poke on my back and a small smile flicked across my lips. I wonder how it does that. I flipped the front cover open, felt a warm hand brush against my shoulders. The pages were stiff and warped, as if water-stained, and a deep yellow color. The first page had only two words on it, handwritten in fancy scrawl. Andrew Thompson. I flipped through the next few pages. November 10th, 1958. January 21st. 1959. 
beneath each date were walls of frenzied, almost illegible script. Words popped off the page. A cold feeling, like plunging into Cayuga Lake in May. Thumping sounds in the attic, above Mildred in my bedroom. The books in the library were all gone, back the next day. I flipped through the pages, faster and faster, the script turning into a smudged blur of yellow paper and black ink. The last entry was dated April 26, 1968. The handwriting was significantly messier, shakier. The words ran into each other, overlapping in illegible scribbles. Smudges of gray covered the page, ghosts of the written words, as if Andrew's palm had touched the wet ink and stamped it all over the page. I squinted, trying to make it out. The doors locked, illegible, can't open, illegible, something's in here. I hear it upstairs, illegible. Oh Lord, please help me. I am sorry, sorry for my sins. The way I treated them, illegible, and Mildred. I hear it closer. Please help me. Let me out, let me out, let me out, let me- Mary. Sharon's voice echoed down the hall. I glanced at the book, heart pounding. Then I slipped it into my bag before Sharon had a chance to see. As I did, I felt the rough burlap of the bag scratch against my entire body. I'm ready! As soon as I walked into my dingy one-bedroom apartment, I pulled the book out of my bag. It hit the round metal table with a loud slap. Almost instantly, pain shot up my chest. Ugh, I forgot. I rubbed my collarbone under the thin golden chain of my necklace. I pulled the flimsy plastic chair across the tile. I snuck a hand inside the cover and flipped it open. My heart stopped. Now, there wasn't just one name written across the page. There were two. Andrew Thompson. Mary Giordano. I turned the page. The same writing of Andrew stared up at me. <sighs> Thank God. For a second, I thought there might be something about me in this crazy book. The old pages crackled and bent under my fingertips. When I got to the last page of Andrew's journal, I gasped. There, on the page opposite his frantic scribbles, was a date. March 10th. 2017, and below it were familiar words. Thank God, for a second, I thought there might be something about me in this crazy book. What the hell? As the words escaped my mouth, black ink bled into the page. What the hell? I slammed the book shut. Then I pulled out my phone and dialed Sharon's number. Hello, you've reached Sharon Tillery. Please leave a message after the beep. I hung up the phone. Then I glanced out the window. Somewhere, less than five miles away, in the sea of black to the west that made up the forest surrounding the mansion, was a very special library. 
a very special set of books and some very special answers that I would get out of Sharon tomorrow. Tell me everything you know about this book. Now. I stood in the kitchen at Sunshire. The book sat in front of me on the granite island, still and silent. I wonder if it's recording this entire conversation. Sharon pretended the soup on the stove needed urgent stirring. The steam billowed up towards the ceiling in puffs of cloud. Sharon? Tell me. I only know rumors. Only things I've heard. Nothing based in fact. Then tell me the rumors. You know, you weren't supposed to touch the books. Really, Mary, I should send you home. If you won't tell me, Mildred will. I grabbed the book, feeling the familiar press of hands across my chest. Mildred! Hey, Mildred! Don't! Sharon grabbed me by the arm and dragged me back into the kitchen. What are you trying to do? Give the old lady a heart attack? Jeez. She ran back to the stove, stirred the soup once more. The spoon smacked against the pot. Then she took a seat across from me and pursed her lips. The book. It's Andrew Thompson, I think. I already know that it's his. His name's right there. No, it's not his. It's him. What? If the rumors are true, that book is bound in his skin. I instantly recoiled. Nausea flooded my body. I stole a glance at the cover, imagining that tan, speckled skin belonging to the man in the portrait. Sharon stirred the soup again, nervously. Andrew was a seedy guy, liked women, especially those with rings on their fingers, if you know what I mean. You knew him? No. He died about 12 years ago, long before I started working here, back when Mildred could afford a full staff. I heard all about Andrew from the old handyman, more than I wanted to know, to be honest. How'd he die? I don't know exactly. Maybe a heart attack, but like they say that didn't make much sense because he was such a health nut. Sharon wrapped her fingers on the granite, blue eyes cast downwards. I do know where he died, though. Where? In the library. The nausea threatened to burst into full-on gagging. I swallowed, hard, and tried to regain my composure. So, how did the book happen? After he died, did they, um... When they found Andrew, he was missing two large patches of skin. One on his chest, one on his back. That was the gossip, anyway. I, I don't know how much of it is true. For a second, I considered telling Sharon everything. That I took the book home. That it seemed to record my thoughts. Instead, I forced a smile. Thanks for telling me, Sharon. You're welcome. Now put that book back where it belongs. For the first time, I obeyed her. I cradled the book in my arms, walked back into the library. Andrew stared down at me from the confines of his portrait. I climbed the steps and walked over to the table. I set the book down, feeling the familiar stroke of a finger across my back as my hand left the book. There, back where you belong. I began to descend the stairs. 
I whipped around. The book was open on the table, its yellowed pages facing towards the heavens. I took a tentative step forward. My heart began to pound in my chest. Hello? I knew I would go unanswered. I took another step, and another, and another, until I was standing in front of the table and staring down at the pages. Words bloomed in black ink on the yellowed paper. Hello? Above it was my entire conversation with Sharon, annotated with my own thoughts next to the dialogue. My body began to shake. Waves of nausea rolled over me. Numbness crept up my body. Stop it! And in the book, stop it. My heart pounded faster in my chest. It's copying everything I say. Everything I think. How? Why? Stop it! Stop it! This time, different words appeared on the page. Words in a blocky, jagged scrawl. No, I won't stop. Sharon! But the doors in the library were now shut. There was no way my voice could travel through the thick wood, through the cavernous mansion, all the way to Sharon in the kitchen. I glanced back at the book. No, I won't stop. A sound filled my ears. Whispers, hissing and muttering, overlapping each other in frantic tones. Then more words bloomed on the page. I know what you did. What? What did I do? One word bloomed on the page. In red instead of black. Thief. No! You stole this book. I was just curious. No. This isn't the first thing you stole, is it? It is. You steal something at every house. Even the chain hanging from your neck. It's from that old blind woman that Sharon knows, isn't it? My fingers touch the necklace. That's... That's not true. It is. You know it is. I picked up the book. Felt the familiar brush of hands across my back. Then I placed it on the floor. Raised my foot. Stop it! Stop it! Stop it! I brought my foot down on the book as hard as I could. A crushing pain hit my chest. I toppled backwards, gasping for air. I fell to the floor. The library twisted and spun above me. Andrew Thompson's eyes stared down at me. A burning heat pressed against my chest, my back. And the world faded to black. I, I don't understand. I just... I just saw her an hour ago. She was asking me about... Well, never mind. We were talking. The police officer offered her a consoling smile. I'm so sorry. How? How did she die? We'll have to wait for the official autopsy, but it looks like a heart attack. As he disappeared into the darkness, Sharon turned back to the mansion. Its hulking shadow rose up against the indigo sky, dotted with stars. She turned and went back inside, ran into the library, up the stairs. 
The book lay on the table where it was supposed to be. The cover somehow looked lighter, paler, smoother. Sharon picked it up, felt the brush of hands over her back. Then she ran back through the dark hallways. Mildred? Mildred? She found Mildred on the usual sofa, wrapped in her blankets. Sharon, don't touch that book. This is him, isn't it? Sharon threw the book on Mildred's lap. He killed her. Mildred's frail old hands poked out of the blankets. As her fingers grazed over the cover, her lips curled into a small smile. Andrew. Oh, Andrew. Then her eyes grew sharp, and her smile faded. I wouldn't put it past you to kill a poor girl. What happened, Mildred? What really happened? She ignored Sharon's question. Instead, she pulled the cover open. Only one name was inscribed on the first page. Mary Giordano. You killed that poor girl so you could be free of this place, didn't you? I see you haven't changed a bit, Andrew. Still not a shred of respect for women. Or for life itself. Sharon pursed her lips, clasped her hands, looked at poor Mildred with sad eyes. You were supposed to be trapped forever. Suddenly she shook the book with all her might and let out a shriek of anguish. You were supposed to be trapped for what you did to me. For what you did to your family, did you hear me? Mildred, easy, it's okay. You are going to be trapped forever. All that ever. Locking the doors shut. Telling the police I never heard your screams. All for nothing. Mildred sunk back into the sofa and closed her eyes. All for nothing. Yes, all for nothing. In our final tale, we join a couple celebrating a beloved new addition to their family, a refurbished smartwatch. You gotta stay healthy and make sure you're getting enough exercise, right? But in this tale shared with us by author Derek Walker, it soon becomes clear that the watch is showing far more steps being counted than should be. A faulty product? (laughs) Well, maybe. Performing this tale are Mike Delgadio, Sarah Thomas, Aaron Lillis, and Alexis Bristow. So keep an eye on your smart devices. They may be smarter than you think, especially when they hold the answer to those extra 2,300 steps.
orange jumpsuits, prison guards, one-way phones fixed to the walls, dull fluorescent lights, wired plexiglass between the prisoners and the free. It was just like the movies, exactly like the movies. That brief, <laughs> so brief, that brief sense of nostalgia is quickly replaced by a deep sense of regret as the reality of our situation sinks in. I'm at the county jail, and I'm about to see Jamie, my wife of 12 years. I'm sure no one saw this coming. I certainly didn't. We were clean kids, college graduates, good neighbors. Some described us as a power couple. We were in love. We are in love. It's been a month since I last saw Jamie. Things were... Things were a lot different back then. Back then, we were playing house, celebrating Christmas on a picture-perfect snowy day. <sighs> I guess that's the way these kinds of stories always start. Perfect, happy family, no cares in the world. Sure, that's embellished, isn't it always? The reality is, is that we were going through a rough patch. In our marriage, I mean. But we weren't quitting, we were trying. To be honest, our tension stems from Jamie's, our, inability to have children. We tried for four years before getting tested. Jamie has a severe case of polycystic ovarian syndrome, PCOS for short, which means game over. And it's fine. It really is. It's hard on both of us, but we're working through it. But I'd be lying if I said it didn't change our relationship. Our vision of being parents together, grandparents together vanished overnight. But that was all a couple of years ago. We tried going down the adoption path, but it's expensive, and unless you're well-connected, not very fruitful. We were on a waiting list with Jamie's parents' church for three years, and then decided to take a break. Of course, none of that matters now. Not anymore. While I wait for Jamie, I retrace my steps. It's become a pastime of mine. Where exactly did things go wrong? I still don't have all the answers and probably never will. But my best guess at this point in time is that things went wrong with a simple act of holiday cheer. An innocent Christmas gift. $40 limit. That's what the rule was. That's what it always was. Not that we couldn't afford it, we just liked keeping things simple. In theory, anyway. Every Christmas for 12 years, Jamie and I had a $40 gift limit for each other. And every Christmas for 12 years, I broke that rule. Jamie kept the rule most years. Not that I minded. I really didn't need any more crap. As for me, I just loved the look on her face every year when she'd be expecting a Target gift card or a book or something, only to find a a new iPhone or a Kindle or a $200 massage credit. <laughs> Love how she never, ever saw it coming. Or at least pretended not to. Sam! <laughs> what happened to $40, huh? Jamie would give me a stern look, holding back a smile, and every year my gesture garnered the same response. And I loved it. That morning we woke up at a leisurely 9 a.m., the luxury afforded to the childless on Christmas. We took turns opening gifts, sitting cross-legged like kids underneath our eight-foot Christmas tree. 
Jamie opened up a framed picture of us on our anniversary trip to Hawaii. I got a first edition copy of The Shining. We each opened up gifts from our parents and friends in the neighborhood. I got a new wallet. Jamie got a Nike hat. The Dawsons, our also infertile neighborhood friends, gave us a Megaplex gift card. It had been a pretty typical Christmas up until that point, but I knew what was coming next. When we got to each other's final gifts, my heart started pounding with excitement. I opened my gift first. It was a pack of running socks disguised in a deceitfully large box. We both laughed at the cheap trick. Then Jamie picked up her gift, a long and heavy box covered in red and gold wrapping paper. I handed her my keys to open it up after emphasizing careful handling twice. Why are you so concerned? You didn't break the $40 limit, did you? I shrugged. When the wrapping cleared enough for her to see what it was, she covered her mouth with her hands. I did, in fact, break the $40 limit. By almost 10 times, I got her a refurbished white Apple Watch Series 3. She had been talking about getting an Apple Watch for a while, rattling off all the ways it would bless her life any chance she got. I pretended not to listen, but I was listening, and I think she secretly hoped I was. According to Jamie, an Apple Watch would motivate her to exercise more regularly. She'd sleep better because she'd be able to track her sleep. She'd be able to track her sometimes erratic heart rate. Not to mention the convenience of answering calls and texts without having to, heaven forbid, reach into her pocket or purse to retrieve her phone. It wasn't cheap, but I thought, like I always do, screw it, this will be more fun. Besides, I got it refurbished. So it was kind of being financially responsible, right? <gasps> oh, I love Jamie squealed as she put the watch on for the first time. After she played around with it for a while, I tried it on to see if I could feel the hype. As soon as the watch detected my heart rate, the screen started flickering. Ugh, that doesn't seem right. What did you do? The flickering went away after about five seconds and I continued to tinker with it. That's when I should have known something was off. I started wondering what refurbished actually meant and if for sure they gave us a working watch. Over the next couple of days, Jamie learned all the tricks and tools of the watch. She started going to the gym every day. She started encouraging us to go to bed earlier so that she could hit her sleep goal of seven and a half hours every night. She raved about how convenient it was to answer texts and calls right from her wrist. I've never had a problem getting deep sleep, annoyingly deep, according to Jamie. But I have legitimately noticed a difference in Jamie as her sleep improved. She really did have more energy. She was happier. I was glad. My gift was truly a winner. On New Year's Day, we got dumped on 12 inches of rocky mountain powder overnight. I got up early to shovel the driveway, but was quickly replaced by Jamie, who wanted to record some active calories on her watch. Our neighbor next door, Charlene Jones, as in keeping up with the Joneses, had already shoveled her driveway, of course. It looked like she had a heat-treated driveway. It was so perfectly cleared. Jamie and I exchanged some snide comments about Charlene, as we typically did, when she emerged from the garage with a bag of snow melt. Her short salt-and-pepper hair splayed out from under her black beanie. 
She took off her thin purple frames as she eyed our half-cleared driveway. She thought of us as slobs because we didn't shovel our driveway within 30 seconds of snow hitting the ground. Charlene was one of those people who I don't think ever had a childhood. Not a fun, normal one, anyway. She came out of the womb with those stern, judgmental eyes. I'm sure of it. In all fairness, Charlene actually likes me. Ever since I found Ruby about two years ago, her tiny white Maltese, which had somehow gotten out of the house one afternoon and wandered halfway across the neighborhood. A big feat for those tiny legs. I had pulled into the driveway just after Charlene realized that Ruby was gone, and I insisted on helping, even though she resisted. I found him 20 minutes later by the elementary school. It's Jamie that Charlene has a real problem with. And that's, again, because of Ruby. This past summer, Ruby again got out and wandered into our driveway as Jamie was backing out in her silver Jetta. You can probably see where the story went from there. The blood didn't run all the way to the bottom of the driveway, but there's a lot more than you'd think for such a small animal. I don't mean to be disrespectful, but it took a lot of sodium peroxide to get those stains out. The whole thing was purely an accident, of course. But that didn't matter much to Charlene. Charlene and I exchanged Happy New Year's and she looked Jamie square in the eyes. Go to hell. Charlene broke her gaze with Jamie and nodded at me, then disappeared back into her garage. It wasn't the first time Charlene berated Jamie, and we figured it wouldn't be the last. Jamie turned to me. Hmm. It's gonna be a good year. <laughs> we shared a laugh and finished shoveling the driveway. The next morning, Jamie rolled out of bed with a headache and a cold. Naturally, she checked her sleep stats on her phone. She only got five hours of sleep, despite going to bed at a reasonable hour. The detailed view of her sleep stats showed her being awake from about 2 o'clock to 3.30 in the morning, despite her having no memory of it. We chalked it up to a glitch in the sleep tracking. How does the thing know when you're sleeping anyway? Then she checked her fitness stats. Oh gosh. I took 900 steps while I was awake in the middle of the night. Well, that was weirder, but we still explained it away. This time to restless leg syndrome. After all, a good shake of the leg or satisfying an itch can record steps on the watch pretty easily. The explanation was good enough, and even though we both left the situation confused, I was just hoping I hadn't dropped 400 bucks on a dud. I carpooled most days to work with my neighbor, Brett York. We lived a couple of streets apart and worked at the same place, Underwood Company, selling insurance to small businesses. I contemplated bringing up that weird night to Brett on our drive, but decided against it. Aside from some small talk about how our holiday breaks were, we mostly drove in silence. I found myself daydreaming at work that day, partially because it was the first day of work back from a long holiday break. Partially because I was starting to think buying a refurbished Apple Watch was a bad idea. <sighs> I should have just forked up the extra 50 bucks or so and just gotten a new one. For fun, I poked around Google Maps to see just how far 900 steps would take you from our house. I figured out Jamie could have walked back and forth through our house nine times. She could have walked about three quarters of the way to Pat's, our local Sinclair station. 
she could have made it to the western edge of the elementary school's playground. While trying to navigate tabs away from Google Map and back to work, I briefly scanned the news. The snowstorm brought power outages to 1,200 homes near the canyon. There were 50 reported car accidents between New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. Amazingly, there were no fatalities. Probably just overconfident drivers with two-wheel drive and no snow tires. I got home from work that evening to find a defeated Jamie sitting at the kitchen table. I asked her what was wrong. Christine Dawson is pregnant. Oh, I mean, that's good, right? Yeah. <sighs> Babe, I'm sorry. I know I should be happy, but... I know, I know. I said, putting an arm around her. Tears began to roll down her cheeks. A little girl? She's having a little girl. <laughs> Jamie recovered after a few minutes, and the rest of the night passed by uneventfully. Jamie and I made homemade pizzas. We took a selfie with red sauce on our noses, trying to pretend like a happy, childless couple, as always. Jamie scrolled Instagram in bed, and I read Amityville Horror. Jamie always rolled her eyes at me reading horror. She worried, mostly tongue-in-cheek, that it would turn me into a monster. We fell asleep around 11.15. The next morning, I deliberately avoided asking Jamie if she had any mysterious steps show up on her watch the night before. I decided that I'd been thinking too much about it, and Amityville horror only heightened my paranoia. Christine Dawson's pregnancy really worked a number on Jamie, and I wanted to be sensitive to that. Jamie was still in bed when I left. The bottle of NyQuil and the pile of used tissues on her nightstand suggested that she was still fighting her cold. I dressed quietly and left without her budging. On my way out the door, I noticed she had started working on a congrats on your pregnancy card for Christine. Inside the colorful, glitter-doused bifold, a simple message was cut short. Dear Christine, we're so happy for. In that moment, I felt Jamie's pain, a deep pain of loss, of never knowing what could have been, of death. I closed the card and walked out the door. I picked up Brett in my trusty 2005 Corolla and we listened to NPR on the drive-in. First, there was a story about Somali pirates, then an interview with an author. Can't remember the book. Not that it matters now. I found my mind wandering again at work that day. Another case of the post-holiday blues, I called it. In an effort to snap out of my prolonged procrastination, I set my timer for 10 minutes, telling myself I would check CNN and the Herald, then get back to work. CNN's headlines suggested a slow news day. I bookmarked an article about the smartwatch wars that I intended to read later. I started wondering if I should get a Fitbit or something. The Apple Watch had too many bells and whistles for me, but missing steps aside, Jamie's overall energy for life had seemed to increase since having it. Next, on to the Herald. They had just updated their website as a sort of last-ditch effort to stay relevant. Harsh, but true. 
A local cop was killed during a traffic stop. There was a murder-suicide in West Mountain. Imagine Dragons put on a sold-out show at Millview Amphitheater. When I tried scrolling down, the screen froze, then flashed black and white like a strobe light for about three seconds. My initial reaction was that it was a bad omen. That's Amityville Horror talking, I told myself. New website kinks, that's all. Still, I couldn't help thinking about the flickering Apple Watch screen a couple of days before, and how disorienting that incessant flashing of lights can be. When the page returned to normal, I scrolled down to the next set of stories. There was a burglary in Green Hill, a town just north of mine. A local nonprofit was holding a fundraiser for plastic pollution awareness that next weekend in Desmond. Then finally, a string of vandalism in Lydia, my hometown. Normally just scanning the headlines would satisfy my itch, but the next thing on my to-do list was cold calling, an activity that's as effective as it is fun. I clicked on the Lydia story. A group of kids were caught out just past three in the morning the night before after a handful of calls came in reporting someone throwing rocks at windows. Four houses were damaged, all of them pretty close to home. It sounded like the kids were well underage, so they probably didn't get much more than a slap on the wrist. I dropped Brett off at home after work and swung by Home Depot to get an automatic security light for our front porch. I installed them as soon as I got home. That evening went as usual, and Jamie and I turned in relatively early. She was in better spirits, and she was starting to get over her cold. The security light, I quickly learned, shined through our bedroom window and directly onto my side of the bed. I was awoken three times that night by the light. So much for being a deep sleeper. Each time I got up and looked out the window to make sure the kid vandals weren't roaming the neighborhood. The first time I checked, it was a woman walking her dog. The second time, it was an overweight middle-aged man getting in a late-night power walk. The third time the light went off, I stumbled out of bed and checked the time. 3.15 a.m. Great. The same time that everything runs amok in Amityville horror. I rubbed my eyes and found my glasses. I turned to see if the light awoke Jamie, only she wasn't in bed. I hurried to the window in time to see a deer walk casually in front of our driveway. I studied its surroundings to make sure I didn't miss anything when I felt a hand on my shoulder. I yelped and jumped halfway back to the bed. Jamie, having just returned from the restroom, stood there with a puzzled look on her face. <laughs> this is why you don't read scary stories before bed. We both fell back asleep. I disabled the security light in the morning. The next morning, Brett texted me and asked if I could drive again. He said he had unexpected car problems. Are car problems ever expected? I picked him up in my Corolla with the usual NPR playing in the background. When I asked Brett about his unexpected car troubles, he looked at me with a puzzled, almost scared expression. He told me his tires had been slashed. All four of them. Not only that, someone tagged the side of his car, too. He reported it to the police, who told him they had received two other calls that morning reporting almost the exact same thing. Slashed tires, spray-painted symbols. The only difference was on one of the houses, a full-blown unicorn was spray-painted on the garage. A unicorn, of all things. 
Upon re-examination of his tagged car, he realized that the symbol spray-painted on his car was the horn of a unicorn. When I got to the office, I checked the Herald and found that in total there were six cars vandalized at four different houses the night before. The same group of kids that were caught throwing rocks before were questioned, but weren't believed to be guilty. People in the online comments section got a kick out of the unicorn element of the whole thing. When I got home that night, Jamie said that she had heard about the slashed tires, but didn't seem interested in talking about it. Jamie crashed early that night, and I stayed awake reading my book for a while. Once I was sure that Jamie was asleep, I discreetly tapped her watch to wake it up. I navigated through the watch upside down, so it took me a while, but eventually I made it into the sleep stats. Sure, it was a creepy thing for me to do, but I had to know. She had been awake for just over an hour the night before. She took almost 1,400 steps, again between 2 and 3 in the morning. 1,400 steps. I had heard stories of Jamie sleepwalking as a kid, but I had assumed she grew out of it. I hadn't noticed her sleepwalking since we'd been together. Then again, I'm a deep sleeper. The next morning, Jamie was distant, not in a normal way, but in a something's-on-her-mind kind of way. When I asked her how she slept, she responded, fine, with no follow-up. I didn't want to push it. I picked up Brett again that morning. He said the police ruled out the group of rock-throwing kids, but didn't have any other good leads. He also told me how freaked out Marianne, his wife, and two kids were. He said his oldest daughter woke up in the middle of the night crying about a nightmare she had. He said his daughter described in vivid detail a nightmare of her unicorn-stuffed animal walking around her room in the night and mumbling something in a deep, raspy voice. Yikes. Despite having an important client meeting that afternoon, I found myself loitering on the Herald, scrolling the police beat most of the morning. I wandered around the local yard sale page on Facebook, a good source of localized, somewhat anonymous neighborhood gossip. Two people complained about a loud party thrown by a group of neighborhood teenagers. A couple people speculated about what they referred to as the unicorn vandal, predicting that his or her crimes were going to escalate. One person suggested that the unicorn vandal should shake things up at the state capitol, reflecting a tumultuous legislative session centering around, ironically enough, suburban crime. Others said the crimes were staged by the House Democrats to garner support for their suburban crime bill. Things were better that evening with Jamie, but when I asked her how she liked her watch, she was brief again and didn't want to talk about it. Again, I didn't push it. Maybe I should have. That night I dreamt I was chased by a man in a black suit wearing a bloody unicorn mask. A rusty pickaxe dragged behind him, throwing up sparks as it scraped the pavement. The man didn't say anything. He just calmly followed. I tried to run, but couldn't. I felt like I was wading through molasses. The closer he got, the louder his breathing reverberated around me, like surround sound. I forced myself to wake up before he could get to me, a trick most of us learn as kids. When I woke up, I was on the couch. I didn't remember moving to the couch in the night. 
I tried not to think too much about it and went back to the bedroom. It was 3.30 in the morning. Jamie was lying peacefully in bed, one leg under the covers, the other on top. The only difference about that night was her Apple Watch wasn't on her wrist. It was on her nightstand. I figured she was getting tired of her sleep stats confronting her about her sleepwalking. I couldn't blame her. As I sat down at my desk the next day, I nervously clicked on the Herald from my bookmarks tab. The top story on the local station was Unicorn Vandal Strikes Again, with a picture of a rudimentary unicorn spray-painted on the brick-red wall of Madison Elementary School, with a chilling message emerging as a speech bubble from the unicorn. The unicorn just wants things to be fair. My heart sank. I texted Jamie asking if she had heard about it. She said she had saw it in person on her way to work. She also asked if we could talk about something serious later. I couldn't focus the rest of the day. The Facebook yard sale page was filled with even more speculation that day. Some called the unicorn vandal a hero, a Robin Hood type figure. They said the message on the school was about improving pay for teachers. Some said it was a middle finger to the 1% since our elementary school boundaries picks up some of the neighborhoods on the hill. These same people tended to ignore the tire slashings from the day before, since the victims were mostly middle class. Also, was vandalizing an elementary school really the best way to get the message across? I called the Apple store that I got the watch from and told them the issue. They said occasionally they get bad refurbished items, but that everything is triple checked before it's shipped. I persisted and set up an appointment with Apple's Genius Bar for their next available appointment, which wasn't until a week and a half later. On the drive home, I asked Brett about the ongoing investigation again. There were no updates. I asked him if he thought the unicorn vandal would escalate on his or her crimes as the Facebook page suggested. He said he didn't even want to think about it. His daughter had had the same unicorn dream the night before, and his wife also had a unicorn-themed nightmare. She dreamt that she rolled over in bed to see Brett staring at her through a Halloween unicorn mask. I briefly thought about telling him about my dream, but didn't. After I dropped him off, I ran through my head for the thousandth time what Jamie was going to talk to me about, this something serious business. Jamie made tea for the two of us and we sat in the living room. Neither of us touched the tea. When I asked her what was up, she began in a calculated, nasally voice. The cold hadn't subsided yet. Ever since getting the Apple Watch, I've struggled remembering the nights. No matter how hard I try, I, I can't think of how I could have racked up those steps. I've picked up on the fact that I've recorded steps on the same nights as the vandalism. I don't know for sure, but... I mean, there's no evidence that you had anything to do with them. You just slept walk, that's all. And they called the kids throwing the rocks, didn't they? The kids maintain they're innocent. I called the station. You called the station? You're right, it might not be me, but it is strange, isn't it? Trying to sound more confident than I actually was, I told her it was crazy. How would she trudge through the snow and go through the physical effort of slashing tires and spray painting without noticing it? Not comforted, Jamie asked that I barricade the front and back door and sleep on a cot blocking the bedroom door. That way, if she were to leave the bedroom, she'd have to go through me. 
I reluctantly agreed, locking the front and back doors with random furniture and setting up the cot. I tied a bear bell to the doorknob to our bedroom for my own peace of mind. I was a lot more nervous than I ever would have admitted. That night, I dreamt I saw the unicorn man again. I was driving past Pat's and I saw him standing at a gas pump, pouring gas all over his body. He just watched as I rolled past in slow motion, his suit drenched, the gas puddling at his feet. I woke up to the sound of my alarm and thought I detected the faint smell of gasoline. As soon as I realized my mind was playing tricks on me, I heard a sob coming from the bedroom. I climbed over the cot, triggering the bear bells, and sat on the end of the bed. Jamie was still lying in bed, her face buried in her hands. Are you okay? Jamie paused. Do you remember me getting up in the night? No, I didn't wake up once. Think really, really hard. I did. I looked back at the cot and the bell dangling from the doorknob. There is no way she could have climbed around the cot without bumping me. No, babe, you didn't leave that room. She put her hands in her lap and sobbed again. I took a sleeping pill. Well, yeah, of course you're not going to remember anything. I just wanted to stop. She showed me her sleep stats on her watch. She had been awake again that night for almost two hours. She recorded nearly 2,300 steps. The Herald had nothing to report that morning. I asked Brett to send me over a list of the houses that had tires slashed. Since he was a party to the police case, he was able to get me the addresses quickly. I did a batch entry into the mapping tool online and measured the distance between the houses, including ours. 1445 Elm to 655 York to 1666 York to 1701 Chestnut to 1703 Chestnut and back to 1445 Elm. Total trip was 1.3 miles. According to the rule of thumb estimates, it would be almost exactly 1,400 steps. The same number of steps Jamie recorded the night of the tire slashings. I paced the office. I walked around the block. I got coffee. I pulled out my phone to call Jamie, then put it back in my pocket. I tried deep breathing on a snow-covered park bench. I was able to convince myself it was all a big coincidence, long enough to make it back to my desk and open my email. One of my tabs on Safari was still opened to the Herald from the day before. I decided to give it one more refresh before starting the workday. As I waited for the page to load, I thought about Jamie's 2300 steps she recorded the night before. What did you do last night, Jamie? In a moment that I'd prefer not to relive, the front page of the Herald finally loaded. The top headline of the page read, Double homicide in Lydia. Suspect at large. Unicorn vandal suspected. The pictures were heavily censored. The report described a grisly scene. A man and a woman were stabbed several times with a pickaxe while sleeping in their beds at home. The names of the victims were being withheld until next of kin had been notified. 
a sick feeling arose in my stomach. I looked at the picture taped to the frame of the desktop of Jamie and me and closed my eyes. For a moment, I imagined what the scene would have been like as it happened. The heavy head of the pickaxe coming down on its victims with a thud, with a crunch. The victims gasping for air in between strikes. I imagined the pools of blood soaking through the bed, the carpet, the walls. The article even mentioned, but didn't show, that a message had been left behind. In blood. Now we're even. Of all things, unicorns. The article mentioned that the only piece of evidence left behind was the pickaxe itself, which wasn't believed to have been on the victim's property. The perpetrator appeared to have worn gloves, so there were no fingerprints. I semi-consciously made a mental note to check the tool shed to see if our pickaxe was there. Of course it is. I haven't used it since I dug up that sprinkler line last spring. Just then, Brett walked up to my desk. He asked if I heard about the double murder. I said I had. He told me who the victims were. I nearly passed out. Christine and Bobby Dawson. Jamie didn't answer the first time I called her. It wasn't a double homicide. It was a triple. I thought back to Jamie trying to write the congratulations card in the kitchen. The second time I called, she answered. She sounded like she had been sobbing. I tried to comfort her, but she was hysterical. It's me. I'm the unicorn fanzel. You... You remember doing all those things? The broken windows? The slashed tires? The... The Dawson's? No! I don't remember a thing. But it had to have been me. I reminded her that there was no proof, that the steps on her watch were nothing but a coincidence. I told her about the appointment I set with the Apple Store, that sometimes refurbished items can be faulty. She wasn't having it. She pointed out that she'd been extremely jealous of Christine Dawson's pregnancy, that she had felt like she hated her even, her best friend. I told her not to tell anyone else that. But that wasn't it. She told me that she'd figured out a way to sync her watch app on her phone to a fitness app that would show her GPS maps of her walks. The 2,300 steps that she took the night before showed her moving directly from our house to Christine Dawson's and back. In that moment, I felt as if I had left my body, like I was floating near the ceiling watching myself talking to Jamie. This can't be happening. I considered telling her to check for the missing pickaxe in the tool shed, then decided against it. What if? I tried consoling Jamie, but it was no use. She was turning herself in. I begged her to wait for me to come home. She reluctantly agreed, but by the time I got there, she was gone. A note lay on the kitchen counter telling me goodbye, that she couldn't live with herself murdering expecting parents. Her best friend, no less. I decided that I couldn't let Jamie give up that easy. That there were ways to prove innocence. That she wasn't doing these things consciously. It seemed like that would be worth something. I thought back to the barricaded doors and the cot and the bell. There's no 
way she got around all of that without making a scene. No way. Before getting into my car to drive to the police station, I decided to take a look inside the shed. The door creaked open, revealing its wooden, antiquated interior. I pulled the string light dangling from the center of the room, illuminating the collection of dusty yard tools. I studied the wall where the larger tools hung. I saw a shovel, a garden hoe, a saw, a broom, a sledgehammer, and a series of wrenches. No pickaxe. My heart rate sped up as I rummaged through the shelves of junk, praying that I only misremembered where I had put the pickaxe the previous spring. While standing on my tiptoes, I grazed the top shelf of the left wall with my fingers and came across a heavy wooden handle. I pulled the tool down and, much to my relief, I was holding the pickaxe. The sense of relief was short-lived, however, because I realized that my fingers, the same ones that grazed the top shelf, were covered in blood. I pulled out a step stool from the counter of the shed and climbed up to get a view of the top shelf. The pickaxe wasn't the only thing hiding up there. On the back of the top shelf was a pile of blood-soaked clothes. I stumbled off the ladder, out of the shed, and lost my lunch in the snow. I must have looked like a disaster because the receptionist was visibly shaken by my appearance. And that's a lot coming from a police station receptionist. Can I help you? I think my wife is here, Jamie Klein. Uh, she's about a uh, 5'8", uh, blonde. Yes, Jamie Klein. She's here. Take a seat, please. She half stood and gestured towards the worn brown leather chairs in the waiting area. A large middle-aged woman with the tips of her bleached blonde hair dyed pink was the only other person sitting in the waiting room. She looked visibly annoyed by me disturbing her peace. After 20 minutes or so, a police officer entered the room and walked straight towards me. He was a weasley-looking man with a graying mustache and wide, beady eyes. Mr. Klein? Yes? I'm Officer Wolf. You know why your wife is here? I think so. She confessed to some crimes. The double homicide in town, I'm sure you're aware by now. Officer, I think she's confused. She has no reason to believe she did any of those things besides She the showed us the GPS data. She showed us her history with the Dawsons. As I'm sure you know, Mr. Klein, the vandalism is one thing. A double homicide is another. Of course. We have arrested her, and she's being held without bail. Without evidence? This is ridiculous. What about an attorney? I decided not to say anything about the bloody clothes at that point. Of course, I didn't want my wife in jail, but I also didn't want to be sleeping next to an axe murderer. I just needed time to process, that's all. She'll have her time with an attorney, but you have to understand, we have a confession. As clear as a confession as I've ever seen. Unprovoked, mind you. It's not everything we need to close a case, but it's enough to arrest her. I'm sure you can see that. I took a deep breath and leaned back in my chair. The gravity of the situation caught up with me at that moment. My heart started thumping in my chest. My mouth went dry. Recognizing that I needed my space, Officer Wolf stood up. 
With a murder as gruesome as this, other evidence will turn up. It's only a matter of time. I had envisioned life playing out thousands of ways. Jamie going to prison for double homicide was not one of them. The news spread quickly, as it tends to do in suburban pockets like Lydia. I learned to stay inside as much as possible. I'd stay inside till it drove me crazy, then I'd drive, drive far away, three or four towns over, where there'd be little chance of anyone recognizing me. Over the next couple weeks, more details rolled in. It turns out that Jamie covered her tracks incredibly well. There were no fingerprints, no blood, no hair, no nothing found at the Dawson's or any of the other crime scenes. Shoe prints were unidentifiable. There were no witnesses, no security camera footage. All they have is the data collected from Jamie's Apple Watch and her confession. I still hadn't told anyone about the bloody clothes. Ernest Hemingway once said, I love sleep. My life has the tendency to fall apart when I'm awake. In Jamie's case, the exact opposite is true. It's been a month since the murders. Jamie has been too ashamed to see me up until now. I've come three times to see her. She's refused to come out each time. This time, she's ready. At least, that's what I've been told. I'm sitting in a narrow room divided by plexiglass and a series of cubicle-like desks with chairs facing in. Everything is gray. The speckled tile floor is gray. The chairs are gray. The desks are gray. The walls are gray. The only things not gray are the black telephones hanging on the walls of each of the booths. I'm the only one in here besides the CO standing behind me by the door. His uniform is gray. After waiting five painfully long minutes, Jamie enters the room, escorted by another CO. Her hands are cuffed. Her blonde hair falls over the sides of her face in a disorganized mess. She looks like she's aged a decade. In that moment, I feel a deep emptiness wash over me. Like this woman that I've loved, that I've built a life with, is dead. She sits down and looks at me with defeated bloodshot eyes. She says she goes days without sleep. She rarely eats. She legitimately believes that she deserves to rot in prison. She's changed. I ask her if she thought something was off about the Apple Watch, if she thought it had been causing all of this. She scoffs and tells me that if I wanted my money back, I could go looking for it in the ditch next to Pat's. I start to tell Jamie that I've been studying case law about people committing crimes in their sleep and that there might be a way out of this. She holds her hand up and closes her eyes, signaling for me to stop talking. She tells me that she doesn't want me to visit her anymore. She tells me to go find someone else, someone who can bear children. She hangs up the phone and turns in her chair, waiting for the CO to escort her out. I feel tears well up in my eyes as I watch her walk through the door and back into the land of the incarcerated, all without a single goodbye. 
I drive home mindlessly, a disbelieving hopelessness following along. I feel like I just watched my best friend get hit by a car. I catch a glimpse of myself in my rearview mirror as I put the car in park in my driveway. I guess I have gotten to that age where I can't hide sleep deprivation. I make a mental note to look for Jamie's sleeping pills. I think back to her eyes. Dark. Red. Changed. Stepping out of the car, I hear the thud of what sounds like a hammer driving a stake into the ground. I see a portly man with a thick beard installing a for-sale sign in Charlene's front yard. She's lived in that same house for 40 years. On my front porch is a blank, oversized white envelope. I open it up as I step inside to find a blank disc and a yellow post-it note. The note is written in clean, almost perfect cursive. Sam, I'm sorry for all that you've been through these past couple weeks. Even though Ruby has been gone for two years, I still owe you a favor. Consider this that favor. Do what you will with it. Besides me, and you soon, no one else has seen it. For the record, I think Jamie deserves to be where she is. I'm sorry if that offends you. I'm moving away, and will likely not see you again. May God be with you, Charlene. My mind spins as I fumble through the junk drawer to find our external CD player. My hands are shaky and weak. When it doesn't turn up amidst those loose pens, batteries, and instruction manuals, I stand up quickly and bang my knee on the open drawer. I hold my breath and wince as I wait for the initial sting of pain to pass. At least I'm not completely numb yet. When I open my eyes, I catch a glimpse of our black Sony DVD player sitting next to the TV on the entertainment stand. Trying my luck that the disc in my hand is a DVD, I fire up the TV and the DVD player and pop it in. As the blank blue screen transition to the stylized gray default menu of the disc, my heart starts beating in my throat. Something tells me this is not going to be good. A single gray box appears in the middle of the screen with a still image of Charlene's driveway and front yard. In the bottom corner of the box, I see a portion of my Corolla parked in our driveway. I push the play button and the static box expands to the full size of the screen. After an uneventful three minutes of bare branches swaying in the winter wind, the screen flashes like a strobe light for two seconds before returning to the camera footage. I blink my eyes, trying to focus. A body comes into view from the corner of the screen, walking down our driveway through the packed snow. Jamie, on her way to murder the Dawsons. My heart sinks. I don't want to be watching this, but I can't look away. The body turns at the end of the sidewalk, briefly leaving the view of the screen, then reappearing at the sidewalk at the end of Charlene's driveway. The body turns towards the camera and the playback pauses. I see a white arrow appear and starts circling around the screen. I realize that Charlene is, was, controlling the playback. The mouse finds the zoom button and clicks it about 10 times, focusing the picture onto the body in the corner of the screen. The picture is pixelated beyond comprehension at first, but it quickly renders a clear picture. 
It's not Jamie on the screen. It's me. This can't be right. How would I... Why would I... But what about Jamie? Unicorn? Why the unicorn? I study the picture now frozen on the screen. Jamie's white Apple Watch is fastened to my wrist. My face looks blank, emotionless, like I'm utterly aware of what I'm doing, of what I'm about to do. But why? My world continues to creep by in slow motion, but now it's spinning. I feel myself slipping into a deep, dark void, a place of pure emptiness. The unicorn just wants things to be fair. I close my eyes and try to create some space in my head, but all I can see are flashing lights in rapid succession. Black, white, black, white. The incessant flashing starts to change colors. Purple morphs to pink, morphs to yellow. I stumble into the bathroom and splash water on my face. I study my reflection. I stare into the eyes of a killer. I look like a killer. Now we're even. My thoughts turn to Jamie, sitting in a jail cell, not getting any sleep, hating herself. And it's all my fault. I'm the one who should be rotting in jail. I look back into my eyes. Unicorn. I go back into the kitchen, tears now welling up in my eyes. I find the card that Jamie started writing for Christine Dawson and pick it up. Chills run down my spine. On the front of the card, floating above the words, congrats, is a pink, sparkly, cartoon unicorn. My vision grows foggy, and I start to feel myself slipping out of consciousness. I lean against the wall and start sliding down when my feet slip out from under me, and I come crashing down on the tile floor. Everything goes black. I'm awakened by an intense flashing of black and white, the strobe sensation that I'm all too familiar with now. I'm not in my kitchen. I'm outside, and it's dark. I look up, and through my clouded vision, a neon-lit red sign. Pats. I drop my gaze down and see a tiny, cracked Apple Watch in my hand. The screen flashes briefly, and I wrap the silicone band around my wrist. As the lights come back on, our stories come to an end. Please remember to be kind and rewind. 
And visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this production. And on their behalf, we thank you for being a supportive, sleepless member. This audio production is copyright 2019 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media Inc.